Hi, this is Sam Lishtak with Absolute EHS, and we are here today with Monica. Hey, Monica, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am well. Thanks for joining me today. Of course. So um, before we jump into talking about COVID and vaccinations, can you tell me a bit about yourself and your career path? Sure. So I um, have been a nurse in the ER for the last four years. I've uh, worked at two different hospitals at this point. Both of them are level one trauma centers and teaching hospitals. So pretty busy places, um, get all the referral patients. And uh, before that, I had a background in just research doing science stuff. Okay. And then for anybody who doesn't know, can you explain what a trauma uh, level one is? Yeah. So it's kind of like the, um, basically the tertiary referral center. Um, so we have to accept any patients that other hospitals might not be able to handle because we maintain all of the specialties. Um, I can't remember exactly what it is, but I know some of the things you have to have to be a level one trauma center is you have to have 24 hour neurology, you have to have 24 hour cardiology. You have to have all of those um, extra things that like a smaller hospital might not have. So we so have all the stroke patients and the cardiac patients, but we're also where an ambulance will, if possible, take somebody who is in a car crash um, or somebody who was shot or who was involved in an explosion. Any of those sort of what we call traumatic injuries that you get will divert to us as opposed to maybe a smaller hospital if it's safe to do so, just because we have more resources. Okay. Um, so you get the strange, the weird, and the just disturbing and all the overflow. Wow. Okay. So. Um, Prior to COVID, what, you know, what was, what was like life before COVID and what state are you in? So I'm in Oregon right now. Um, I actually had just moved into a new house right before COVID. So we moved in on the 16th of March, which was good timing because before that we'd been living with my in-laws and it would have been really difficult to navigate um, still working, living in a house with people who have comorbidities that I'd be kind of concerned about. Yeah. Um, but I do have a toddler, so before COVID, there was a lot more story time and gymnastics and other activities with him, and that's been, you know, as a nurse, a lot of my day-to-day -day life has been effectively the same. Like, I still go to work. I still do my job every day, um, but, like, a lot of that extra, so family stuff has changed. Um, so how does it change? When, when COVID hit, what, what did change? Um, so when COVID initially hit, um, I know that his gymnastics class was still running for a couple weeks, um, which was surprising to me because everything else around here closed down pretty quickly. Uh, but I definitely wouldn't let my kid go just because if there was going to be like a transmission risk, I was it. Um, so you, you know, pulled him out for the sake of the gym. So I pulled I pulled him out for the sake of the other people in my community. Um, it was also like a, a thing that I had to have a pretty long conversation with my husband about is because I know a lot of people made different, very hard decisions early on about still seeing their families. Um, and there wasn't really a good answer to that. But I did sort of have this lingering background and research science and everybody was thinking, oh, well, it's just for a couple weeks or maybe for a month. And I knew that it was not going to be a couple weeks or a month. 
none of the things we were doing were aggressive enough for it, that to be true. Um, so I definitely sat down with my husband and we had a pretty long conversation about like, do you and the, and the boy move back in with your parents for however long, or do we not? Because we knew it was gonna be six months to a year to potentially longer. And we just kind of decided as a family that that wasn't necessarily what was best. So we enacted like a lot of changes in our daily routine for me going to work and coming home from work to do our best to sort of mitigate the risk that is me, you know, being at the hospital, taking care of COVID patients. Um, so, um, you know, before the pandemic, you know, maybe not the best decision in the world, but I drove home in my work shoes and took them off in the garage. And now my work shoes stay at my locker at work. And I have like a totally separate pair of shoes that goes just in my car. They don't come in the house. They stay in the garage. And I will come home in my scrubs and put them into the wash. But I change out of my scrubs at work now and have a different pair of clothes. I completely strip them in the garage, which is nice that I have a garage with a washing machine in it. Oh, it's in there. That helps. Yeah, it does help. So I get out of my car and I strip out of the clothes that I've only been wearing for half an hour to drive home in. And then I take a shower before we do anything. Um, I had, thankfully, like we've had a pretty supportive, you know, extended community and a lot of them like to do crafts. So I have a whole supply of lunch bags that can go through the wash. So I've got a shelf set up in the garage where all of the Tupperware and stuff gets quarantined for two weeks before we run it through the dishwasher. And then the bag that goes into work with me goes through the wash. And the bag that had my sweatpants in it and now has my dirty scrubs just goes right into the washing machine. Um, since I take my cell phone, my cell phone doesn't go into the hospital with me anymore. Um, but I do touch it in between leaving work and coming home. So I clean that off every day before it comes in the house, even though that's probably overkill. But yeah, a lot, a lot of people are struggling right now with what's, what were we doing before that's kind of decided to be, that we are deeming overkill now, um, but you're, you're in the middle of COVID patients. Yeah, I mean, you know, realistically, I clean my hands every 50 seconds at work, it seems like, and then I wash my hands really well when I change after I leave. And my phone's in my car the whole time. So in theory, I'm touching my phone with hands that are clean. Do I really need to sanitize it if I've just touched it for the like two seconds to unlock it and turn my GPS on and make it so that my husband can track me on my drive home in the morning? Probably not. But I also have a three-year-old who is three and touches my phone and licks it because he thinks it's funny. So Yes, I, I understand that. I also have a three-year-old who picks um, things up her nose. You know, it's just, it's just different. I think uh, everybody, everybody had to decide what was right for their family and what makes them comfortable being around the people they love if they're still working with us. But... So at any point in there, we, there were all these stories about doctors who pitched tents in their own garages to protect their families and all that. Was that ever part of the conversation or was it just a plan to make sure you could come in? I mean, I think no, just because of, you know, the resources that I was working with. So I honestly feel like that sort of idea would have been harder for our family. 
um, then, you know, unfortunately we live somewhere where we do have a lot of family nearby and our family does have, you know, potentially space for us. And I think it would have just been easier if that was what we were going to do to have, you know, my husband and the kid live with the in-laws so that they had that stability in their life. Because, I mean, it's already hard enough for a toddler to all of a sudden have that routine changed mm -hmm. um, and not be able to give me a hug right when I come home from work. But I think it would have been almost more traumatizing for him to have me, like, be able to see him but not touch him or interact with him in a meaningful way. So, but that's not, you know, a resource that everybody had. So people were wanting to insulate their families and didn't have that availability to just move their entire family away from them, then yeah. Yeah. Sounds really hard. Um, but we're so close to 2021 and the vaccine is here. The vaccine is here. So um, I know you just got your first dose. When, when did that happen? Um, I got my first dose on the 17th. Okay. So oh, almost two weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Let me double check. It looked before we talked, but I could be off by a day or two. But I was probably like the second, the second day that people got vaccines was when I got mine. That's great. Which one did you get? So I got the Pfizer vaccine um, because that is what was available. So um, we had a certain number of doses allotted to our hospital and um i honestly didn't think i'd be in the first round of vaccines because they were i was working the following day um and they were a little concerned about people calling out of work but they were more concerned about getting people vaccinated so when they initially got the confirmation that um we were for sure getting the vaccines they sent out sort of like a survey to people um, just because there was some stratification that went into how they prioritized who and when the vaccines were happening. So um, at least at the hospital I work at, they stratified first by just like exposure risk um, in terms of what departments and what people in the departments were getting those vaccines. So I think they prioritized the, the medical ICU at our hospital and then the cardiovascular ICU at our hospital are seeing most of the very sick COVID patients. Uh, less sick COVID patients are going to one of our medical floors and then the ER. Um, so those were the four sort of units that started first. And within that, they sort of stratified by um, age and risk factor and sort of other considerations that might be known to the manager. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, maybe you live with your grandma who has a lot of comorbidities that sort of stuff sort of went into the decision making, but ultimately we had enough doses that as somebody who didn't really meet any of those stratifications other than, you know, I work in the ER and we see COVID patients and we don't always know they're COVID patients. Um, they <clears throat> got me in that second day, just sort of told me what time to show up and I stood in line for a while, got a vaccine. That's great. Um, and so just, just so listeners know, how old are you and are you, do you have any comorbidities or allergies? So I'm 31 and I don't have any allergies that I know of to anything medicine related. Um, 
I like vaguely have exercise induced asthma, but not enough that it's really been a concern during the pandemic. Um, so, you know, youngish, relatively healthy-ish. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was fine. It was a shot. Did you have any side effects? Um, my arm was really sore. So I got, because of the asthma when I was in my early 20s, I got a pneumonia vaccine. And I would honestly say that that was worse than the COVID vaccine. Um, but this one was just, my arm was really sore for about a day. And not, th this is the thing that I, I don't think that as a, as a cohort of people getting the vaccine we were really expecting is when we say really sore, we don't mean like, oh, you got a vaccine really sore. It's more sore than a typical vaccine would be. Um, and it, at least for me, like it spread across my neck and over to my other shoulder within about six, seven hours. Um, but, you know, I took a bath, it was fine. So like, um... Like if you work out too hard or like if, if you could describe it in some way that's similar, um, kind of like that, that the day after you work out too hard, really sore where it just, you know, I didn't notice it until I tried to like move my arm after I'd been reading on my couch for a second. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, my arm really hurts. That's really uncomfortable. I'm going to go take a bath. Um, but I have coworkers that didn't and then worked all day. Like it is not a huge hindrance. I know some people um, got like almost like hot flashes and just took some Tylenol. Did you take anything? I didn't. I was perfectly happy with my bath. So. Okay. And uh, you, you said you were scheduled for work the next day. Did you end up going in or was it too severe? I did. Okay. I did. It was fine. You're a trooper. <laughs> um, before you got vaccinated, you know, it's so new. Um, and I, you know, you and I go pretty far back. I know you're very good at doing your due diligence and your research before you put anything in your body or advise anybody to do anything. Were there any, what was your pros and cons list? What did it look like? So, I mean, ultimately, I didn't have a lot of cons. I knew that there were slightly better outcomes and some of the stuff looked better with the Moderna vaccine, but I honestly wasn't given a choice. And it's not like in the middle of a pandemic, I'm gonna be like, no, I'm waiting for the one I want um, because I wanted the protection for my family and for the people around me. Um, I honestly, like my, this whole technology feels like a little bit of a Hail Mary to me and I'm really glad that it worked. Um, because it's new. It's new technology. And we didn't know it would work. It seems like it should work on paper. And then they did their research and it does in fact work, which is great because otherwise we'd be looking at probably another year until we could get a vaccine rolled out using sort of the more traditional ways to develop a vaccine. Um, I feel like my, my big holdup and I haven't really honestly done a ton of research into this specific issue is that I don't know if they're going to be as effective as they say. So, you know, the, the trials all started during a pandemic. So all of the research that has happened during a pandemic. 
So the one thing that was nice for them doing the research is that it was sped up over typical because coronavirus is so transmissible. So people in the control group got sick really quickly. Um, but people in the in the study group also were in a study group in the midst of a pandemic when people are washing their hands more and they're wearing masks and, you know, theoretically social distancing. Um, and my understanding is most of the people who were involved in the trials were, you know, healthcare professionals who are going to be more likely to abide by those things. Right. So, like, it feels like to me that, you know, the vaccine's great. And it didn't show any sort of serious side effects, but it's new technology. We don't know what it looks like two years out. We don't know what it looks like three years out. We don't know if this virus is going to mutate in the next year. But the risk benefit for me was that this is just another thing that I can do to protect myself and to protect my family. And, you know, am I still going to wear masks and wash my hands all the time and carry hand sanitizer in my pocket for my kid everywhere we go? Yes. But it, I'm also going to feel better about, like, maybe letting him see his cousins and letting him play with other kids at the park, you know, because I'll feel less like a vector for the virus. Right. And just so to be clear, it's because you feel you'd be the reason that your family got sick. So yeah. you're the one getting vaccinated. Um, you mentioned new technology. Um, not everybody who listens to this knows what you're talking about. And I know you're good at teaching stuff like this. Can you do a real quick synopsis of what you're... What sure. You're so uh, both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are what are called mRNA vaccines. And it's a new technology. It's not how we typically make a vaccine. So what they did with these vaccines is they took apart the genetic makeup of the coronavirus and picked a piece of that genetic code that codes for what's called a spike protein. So if you've seen the pictures of the coronavirus, one of those little things that sticks up and looks kind of like an eyeball. Um, so it codes for one of those. And so what it is, is it's just a piece of DNA that's sort of encapsulated in some stuff to preserve it in your body and keep it from actually entering any of your cells. Um, and when it gets into your body, um, your body sees a piece of DNA and codes for it. So it actually, sorry, it sees a piece of RNA, but it then makes a bunch of these spike proteins, which shouldn't necessarily get you sick in theory, because it's just the protein. It's not the whole virus. It's not doing any of the things to your body that are gonna make you feel unwell. Um, and it activates an immune response, teaches your body that that protein is foreign and helps you identify it faster in the future, which is why you need two doses of the vaccine is that you need the initial one and then the second one to sort of cement the memory in your immune system that this is foreign, this is bad, we should attack this. That way, if you do have a coronavirus floating around in your system, it'll still recognize that spike protein. So this is different from a typical vaccine because usually um, other vaccines for viruses use what are called denatured viruses, which is where you take a normal virus and in some way make it either less harmful or kill off the virus and just inject an actual piece of that virus. So similar technology, but this is new and it's different. And, you know, on paper, to me, it actually seems safer. I was going to say, it sounds almost like it would be safer because if you don't denature the other virus either thoroughly or if we have any kind of issues, 
um, in doing that process, you could actually be injecting live virus, right? Correct. It's also like a like kind of a derivative of how they how they engineer the flu vaccine. Um, it's just that with the flu vaccine, they take it a step further before they do it. So with the flu vaccine every year, they pick the two pieces of the spike protein that they want the chicken eggs to code those proteins. So this just is switching that step where instead of coding those proteins inside of a chicken egg based off of RNA from the flu virus, you're coding it with your own ribosomes in your own body. Um, which could potentially also be helpful for allergies because there's no chicken eggs in these ones. That's great. Well, although we do know that some people are having pretty severe allergic reactions, but it yes. seems like the numbers are extremely low. They're just almost sensationalized because it's so bizarre. Um, I mean, it's also just a divisive topic. Um, we do love our kind of a hot button issue at baseline, and then this one is new. And it was, you know, emergency approved. Um, so it's just easy for people to point at, you know, but I think everybody just has to, you know, look at the information and then make the decision that's right for them and for the people around them. So if you uh, you know, in talking about vaccines, we're talking about your your body recognizing the spike proteins and knowing this is foreign and we need to, you know, trigger an immune response to get rid of it. If you've already had COVID, should you still get vaccinated? Yeah. Okay. And what happens if between that first and second vaccine, you get COVID? Do you still get your That's, second? You should still get your second one. Um, that's one of those places where we unfortunately don't have a great amount of data. So um, what we do have data about though is that, um, and this actually came off of a military base, so it came out of a cohort of very baseline healthy human beings where there was a COVID outbreak, is that in patients who do get infected with COVID from natural COVID means, only about 60% of them develop antibodies and develop that immune response. So getting COVID doesn't necessarily bar you from getting COVID again, and it doesn't bar you from transmitting COVID to other people. So all of this is kind of, um, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the Swiss cheese model. Mm -hmm. um, these are all just little layers. None of this is gonna completely work by itself. So, as long as you're not, you know, still very ill, which is a counterindication to getting a vaccine in the first place. Um, if you're not running a fever, if you're not still actively having a cough, you're not still having those body aches and all of those symptoms of COVID, but you've had COVID, you should absolutely get your second dose of vaccine because it just does that one more step to sort of help teach your body to recognize this as foreign and to kill it off as an intruder. Um, because unfortunately, what we're seeing is that sometimes even if you get the COVID virus and you get ill, you don't develop that immune response and that immune memory. So it's just one more thing that you can do to sort of protect yourself. Right. And then the, the final question I keep seeing everybody ask is, once you get the vaccine, 
do you still need to take all the precautions that we've been taking with the social distancing and the masking up and the sanitizing and everything else? I would, I have two, I have two responses to that. The first response on the one that I, I dealt with personally with my family is once you get the vaccine, you need both rounds of the vaccine. You need to wait two weeks for it to work before you do anything different at all. Um, like I had family members who I got my first dose of vaccine and they were like, great, you can come to Christmas dinner. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, I can't. I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> so you need two weeks past that. And then this kind of comes back to my previous point is that all of the research on this vaccine and its efficacy was done during a pandemic. So yes, you still need to wear a face mask and you still need to wash your hands and you still need to do your best to socially distance. Um, because that's what people were hopefully doing when we did the research on the vaccine. And again, this is, this is a Swiss cheese model. Is the vaccine going to completely stop this virus? No. Does the social distancing completely stop the virus? No. Does washing your hands completely stop the virus? No. Does wearing a mask completely stop the virus? No. But the more things that we can do to slow down the spread and slow down how many people are getting sick and how quickly they're getting sick, the better position that we're going to be in and the sooner things can start to resemble normal. Um, I know for me personally, it's going to make me feel a lot better about socially distancing while seeing my family is because the case rate at my hospital started to get up so high and the number of emails I was getting about patients who we found out down the road had coronavirus when we didn't suspect that initially being like, hey, you need to do temperature checks. You need to be aware that you were exposed just got so high that I didn't feel like even washing my hands and wearing a mask and staying six feet apart, it was safe for me to go visit family members anymore. So I had to kind of be like, it's too, too risky. And I know that risk. Yeah. So for me personally, two weeks after my next vaccine, I will feel comfortable to with a mask on while washing my hands and staying far away from people at least, you know, go visit my in-laws and go visit my kids' cousins. Um, Even with a known close contact. <clears throat> um, right. And that's, that's one of those things that is kind of like a unique situation to working in the healthcare field is I do get an email, right? I, I know within a few days that that happened. Um, the other thing with that is that you know, our current policy at the hospital is that we're basically in full PPE 24-7. So every patient encounter, I have a face mask and a surgical mask on, right. and I'm washing my hands. Really, the difference is whether I put a gown on on top of my scrubs. Well, and the other difference is you've, you've been fit tested, you're getting physicals, you've been through bloodborne pathogens and universal precautions training on how to remove gloves and don and doff stuff without contaminating yourself. Right. And so the, I mean, the big thing for me that's really difficult is that CPR is an aerosol generating procedure. And so what we are supposed to do is stop and take our face mask on outside, off outside the room and put on a respirator and put on full PPE and just 
take that minute to fully put your PPE on before you go in and do CPR. That's what we are supposed to do. That's not what happens. It's virtually impossible to not go save somebody's life because you don't have a respirator on. Yeah. Are they putting AEDs on? In th- like, according to your procedures, at least, is the idea to put the AED on while you take that minute? Um, well, so somebody, somebody has to do that. Oh, so just everybody takes a minute to put on, in theory, to put on a respirator. So wow, that's not what happens. That's so opposed to what you've been trained to do and what, you know, at least for me, I feel like is morally right to do. So usually what happens is that we all rush in and start working on saving somebody's life while somebody goes and grabs a bunch of PPE and we put it on sort of in the room that already has chest compressions happening and somebody being bagged and it's not great, but it is what we're doing. And so, you know, do I take a two week pause after something like that happens? Absolutely. Do I take a two week pause after somebody's like, hey, that guy with kidney stones had COVID and you're like, okay, well, I was in that room for five minutes wearing a mask and a face shield. He didn't cough. He had kidney stones. Like, those are different situations. Right. It's risk mitigation. And, um, and just, you know, for anybody who's listening, the reason the CPR, even just a minute delay, um, at least uh, as an instructor, I know what we teach is for every minute delayed getting in AED onto a patient, you lose 10% chance of saving their life. By the time the patient actually gets to the hospital, they've already been in an ambulance for what, five, 10 minutes, if, if we're lucky, if they're close. And, um, right. and medics so have been working that, on that situation is actually better, right? Because we know that patient's coming. We know we're going to do CPR. Right. We put the PPE on first. What is a struggle is when you have somebody that was kind of doing okay that all of a sudden becomes, which happens a lot in an emergency room because that's why you're in an emergency room is because you're not doing well. Right. And that's where the struggle is, is when you have somebody who you didn't previously need all of that PPE on that all of a sudden you do. And I'm guessing part of why you're not just always wearing this is because of the stress on your own lungs, the cost of the PPE, not to mention all the PPE shortages we've had throughout the year. Right. So there's, there's absolutely a PPE shortage. So we're doing our best to reuse it, but it's just, it's honestly, it's hot and it's uncomfortable and you can't really effectively do your job wearing all of that for 12 hours because that's how long our shifts are is it's 12 hours. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just not feasible. And fortunately, you know, I work at a hospital that did a really good job making sure we had access to PPE. Um, and at least in my department, the medical director looked at the initial PPE recommendations and told us that we weren't doing that and that it was ridiculous. Because um, it was too lax or too much? Um, so with the N95 respirators, um, there, and I honestly haven't looked into this, but there is this idea of floating around that you can put them into a paper bag and just reuse them over and over and over and over again. But that all kind of rubbed us the wrong way because they're supposed to be single use pieces of equipment. You wear them into the room, you wear them out, you take them off, you throw them away. Um, 
So why all of a sudden we can put them into a paper bag for months at a time is beyond us. But they also had a caveat on that, that you should only do that if you were trained in how to do it properly. Well, there's no way to do it properly. It's a single use piece of equipment. Yep. So it's just like a liability thing on the hospital's sake. Like, yes, you can reuse this piece of equipment, but only if you're trained to do it properly, which there isn't training on. So what our medical director said was that absolutely not, don't do that. But what we can do because our patient encounters are so relatively short is what's called extended reuse. So once we put a respirator on, we wear it for up to eight hours or until it becomes visibly soiled. And in between patients, we take our face shield off, which is protecting the respirator and sanitize the face shield. Okay. Which, at least from a, like a personal, like my understanding of sterile technique and aseptic technique makes more sense to me because then you're not touching your respirator every three minutes when you go in and out of rooms. You're touching it once every eight hours. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're generally rated for eight hours of use, but yeah, the, the reuse of these single use items has been an uproar, at least in, in the community I work with. So um, yeah, I'm glad you're, I like your hospital. I'm glad your medical director said that. Don't put them in well, a paper. And I, I do think that the rest of the hospital is, is doing the paper bag thing and that is a choice that they're making because we've had a supply of respirators that hasn't necessitated that. Um, do we have the nice fancy ones we had before the pandemic? No, but we have respirators. Right. Good. Um, I just don't feel like you can put them on and off that many times and still get a seal. Yeah. So um, we're going to talk again after you get your second vaccination and uh, fingers crossed for no side effects to chat about. But uh, before we sign off, is there anything you just want people to know or you want to say and get out there? I mean, wash your hands. Really, just like wash your hands. Use soap and water. It works better than the hand sanitizer. It's better for your hands. And it's, this is kind of one of the things that sort of like, I know my colleagues have reflected on this as well but it's probably not something that occurs to people who haven't hung out in the medical field, but more time and energy went into teaching your doctors and nurses how to wash their hands and validate that they're doing it right than went into teaching them how to do anything else. The amount of time that was spent teaching me how to put in an IV was probably five minutes. Oh, really? I really refreshed her course on washing my hands and it was like a three hour thing in nursing school. Like, it is the absolute best thing that you can do to keep yourself safe is to wash your hands with soap. Copious amounts of soap, right? Soap. Soap. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Monica. I no really problem. It. And uh, we'll touch base again in a few weeks. Yeah. See you then. All right.